Let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapters 25 and 26. That's right, we're going to do two chapters in the book of Acts. How are we going to do that? We're going to do it fast. That's how we're going to do it. Acts 25 and 26. I know it's time to sort of speed this up because I just had somebody, I won't say who, but it was a female bassist uh, who just said, like, yeah, we've been in the book of Acts since like 2019, right? It's from since before COVID. And I'm like, no, it has not been that long. But that's how long it can feel when you spend a couple of years in a book. So it does feel like a long time. But we're going to cover two chapters today because we need to not only move our series along, but we also need to understand that some of these parts are they take up some space, right? They take up some real estate in the book. And to just focus on part of it doesn't really help us to understand the whole. So we're going to look at two chapters today, 25 and 26. And part of the reason that I like covering these two chapters together is because it gives us a picture of what we'll call unapologetic Christianity. Unapologetic Christianity. I don't know if you know this or not, but... Uh, I get weird letters in the mail uh, sent to the church. And uh, so like weird phone calls, not one of them makes it to me. Not in 16 years has one weird phone call made it to me because Deb, our ministry assistant, screens those calls. But, uh, but I do get some of the mail. And have you ever seen in the movies, uh, like a serial killer will have a journal? Uh, or they'll write letters, and it's like really weird print, and there's like images taped on, and it looks cool but creepy at the same time. Or the letters that they'll send to like the police, same thing, like, like small print, lots of stuff. It's kind of crazy. I literally get those kind of letters frequently sent to the office. Uh, and those get to me. Like Deb will screen like phone calls, so I don't get I've never had a crazy phone call because Deb just screens. like, you ain't talking to the pastor. It's not going to happen. But like letters, she'll check it out. And she'll be like, yeah, you should, you should look at this. So I found one again. I'm like, that happens. I got one uh, this week. And this week, uh, looks like something from a serial killer's notebook. Lots of minuscule print, handwritten out. And it's all about how, hey, pastor. You, they're not, he's, not, he's from like Ohio or something. And I assume it's a he. I, don't, I didn't read the, to the very end. But he starts off and he's like, listen, you need to know that Cain was not the offspring of Adam and Eve. It's the offspring of Eve and Satan. And, uh, and that line has continued on which is just like nuts. Like this person's like crazy, theologically crazy stuff. Lots of Jesus pictures and stuff in there. And then I read on, I just kind of skim down, blah, blah, Antichrist, blah, blah, Joe Biden, blah, blah, nuclear uh, assaults. Like, okay, like this is crazy. This, so I get that from time to time. Unsolicited, <laughs> I'm not looking for it. But some people like that have platforms, they have microphones, they have podiums. They have followers. And when those of us that are, no, I don't want to call us mainstream. I just like to call us chill, right? We're like, we're Christians. We believe the truth, uh, but we're not like totally nuts, okay? Um, and so when we who are orthodox, right, evangelical, Baptist Christians, when we see that stuff, it's like, ooh. And when they have a platform and they start talking crazy, we're like, ah. And what do we do? We kind of apologize for them to the world. We'll say like, hey, world, sorry about that guy. We're not with him, or he's not with us. Like there's, like, that's, there's a difference here, right? So we kind of make an apology. We're like, I'm sorry about that. And then we do it with other kinds of Christians, right? And th those that are actually orthodox and evangelical, they're just a little different, or maybe they're a little weird for us. And it'd be like, uh, hey, uh, hellfire brimstone. Think about that. A lot of us hear the hellfire brimstone preachers, and there's lots of yelling and sweating. And uh, it's all about you're going to hell, and everybody's going to hell unless you repent, right? And we, a lot of us will be like, mm, it's not that I 
technically disagree with the idea because there is hell. We believe in hell, but the approach is off. And so we're kind of like, ooh, we apologize. Sorry, we're not like that. We're not yelling at people. Um, and then sometimes what we do when we see these things, we apologize and we, we overcompensate as if we don't believe in hell as if hellfire isn't a reality for us. Sometimes out of embarrassment or discomfort or wanting to kind of uh, like, like get people to calm down and not judge us, we overcompensate and become overly apologetic. So while there are extremes on either side, I certainly, I certainly want us to be a different kind of Christian. I want us to be unapologetically Christian. And I think all of us should be, and probably most of us need to work on being unapologetically Christian. This is not an arrogant Christian, a know-it-all Christian. This isn't a big mouth, like finger-wagging, in-the-face Christian. Here's what I mean by unapologetic Christianity. Unapologetic Christianity is a bold belief and a kind conviction that is born of love for God and love for people. That's what I'm talking about unapologetic Christianity, of course, it's orthodox, right? We believe the Bible. But unapologetic Christianity simply means that we have a bold belief, right? So there is, there is a, a confidence and a courage that comes with our faith that takes us out into the world. But it is also a kind conviction. It is not arrogant. It isn't looking to start fights. It isn't looking to condemn. It is looking to save, and it's born out of love. It's born out of a love for God and a love for people. We're going to unpack this at the end, but that's the principle that I want us to hold on to because it's a principle we see in Paul. He was unapologetic in his faith. So we're going to see that, but to see it, we're going to have to cover two chapters, okay? So we're going to run through it. We're going to jog, jog through it. Jog through it together. A little bit of exercise, okay? It, listen, it's so long, I literally got lost in the first service, in my sermon. So I've, I've, I've went through it again. I think I'm, I'm good now, so I think we'll be okay. If you're new to the series or if you're new to Redeemer, let me just tell you, uh, we're, we're looking at a situation that the Apostle Paul finds himself in, the Apostle Paul, this, this missionary that not only preached the gospel to his own Jewish people, but he primarily focused on and had the biggest impact on the Gentile population, right, the non-Jewish world. And Paul went on these missionary journeys where he'd preach the gospel and make disciples and start churches and strengthen churches and help them raise up leaders. And he did this once. He did it twice. He did it a third time. He came back. And when he came back to Jerusalem, there were lies and, and gossip about him and people trying to trip him up. Uh, a lot of his Jewish uh, brothers and sisters, certainly the Jewish brothers in leadership, hated him and his preaching. And they wanted him to stop. They wanted him dead. He was assaulted after that third missionary journey. He was arrested, even though he was innocent. Arrested then by Roman authorities who were in charge of the land of the day. And he has been tied up in the courts and been under arrest for two years. Even though the Romans know, like, you're, you didn't really do anything wrong, but we don't really want to deal with it right now. So they just keep him on ice. Two years. That's where we pick up. The chief priests are still plotting to kill him. Chapter 25, verses 1 through 5 says, Now, three days after Festus, that's the governor, right? Three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. That's cold. That's what they're doing. They want to kill Paul. So Festus, governor, you're in charge of the situation. Send him up. We'll take him out. 
Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, uh, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. All right, so Festus is the new governor, right? He's the new one. He's taking over. Uh, Paul's been in prison basically for two years. Now here comes Festus, um, and he's meeting with the chief priests. And the chief priests are like, listen, we got to get rid of this guy. Can you just send him to him? And he says, you know what? What we need to do is uh, I need to go down there. Let me, let me talk to him, Let's hear him out. And you guys send your people down. If there is any reason that I can send him your way, I'll send him your way. So... We read in verses 6 through 12, you know, Paul's essential uh, defense, right? So Festus uh, stayed among them not more than eight or 10 days. He went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat at the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. All right, so we have these unfounded accusations. They're accusing Paul of doing terrible things, namely blasphemy, uh, defiling the temple by bringing Gentiles in the, in the temple. He has uttered no blasphemy, no false teaching. He did not bring uh, Gentiles into the temple. Uh, he's done none of these things. These are unfounded and they're therefore unprovable accusations. Verse 8 says, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. So Paul's being very clear here. I am innocent of all of these charges. I shouldn't be in jail. I haven't broken Jewish law and I haven't broken Roman law. So what are we doing? That's what he's asking. What's going on? And it gets weird, right? Because, you know, as, as Paul is offering a defense in verse 9, Festus looks to, Festus is essentially making an attempt to do the Jews a favor. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, well, do you want to go up to Jerusalem there and be tried for these charges before me? Right there, that's, that's a death sentence. He's saying, like, listen, hey, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. So if you want, you can go back up to Jerusalem he sorted out up there, knowing that the moment he sends him on his way to Jerusalem, he's going to be killed by these assassins. Festus is not a good person here. He's not showing kindness. He's trying to get Paul out of his hair, but also into the hands of those who would kill him. But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. In other words, he's saying, if I'm guilty, then get me, right? If I'm guilty, get me. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. So Festus tried to set Paul up in that moment, and Paul is not falling for it. Paul's smart. Paul goes, no. I'm not guilty. You know I'm innocent. There are no charges that can be brought to me that would require me to be punished in any way. And so since I'm being accused as a Roman citizen, I would like to appeal to Caesar. I want Caesar to take care of this because this is essentially a capital case, right? I could be put to death here. I want Caesar to decide my fate. Now, as a Roman citizen, you could do that. You could appeal to Caesar. Take it all the way up to the top. 
Take it to the emperor. Let the emperor decide. And as a Roman citizen, in these serious cases, you could make that appeal. And if you did, got locked in. Now we got to go that way. No more of this kangaroo court nonsense that Paul's been dealing with. So Paul appeals to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, said to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. This is Festus. He even had to check. He had to confer. Is that right? He has to now go to Caesar? Okay, yeah, I got it. It was confirmed. You're right, Paul. Uh, you were going to send you to Caesar. Now, at this point in the story, enter Agrippa and Bernice. <laughs> Bernice I just like Bernice because it, like, it sounds like a cool woman, but from like the 1920s. Bernice. Agrippa and Bernice. Agrippa's a king. Right? He's a regional king, uh, a ruler who has more authority, obviously, than Festus. And uh, Bernice is his sister. And that relationship is as bad as you can imagine. It is a wildly immoral and inappropriate relationship that they have for a period of time. So Agrippa rolls into town in verses 13 through 27, this brother-sister immoral duo. See in verse 13, now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to greet Festus. They are there to say, Festus, you're the new guy. Welcome aboard. Good to see you. Hope things, how are things going? Like, how are you liking it? Like, what's, what's new? So that's why they're there. They're there to, um, to wish Festus well. And then they learn of Paul. Look at verses 14 through 21. It says, and as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix, right? That was the governor before Festus. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking a sentence of condemnation against him. And I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So... When they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. And when the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. I love that. I just, I really I like, I like hearing non-Christians talk about what we believe and when they kind of get it right. Like, they're saying, like, so Festus is saying, it's like, well, listen, they, really what it came down to is it was this guy, Jesus, who died, and, uh, but then Paul's saying that he rose from the dead. I don't know. Well, that's, what that's what they're arguing about. And they're like, that is exactly right. That is, that, that is not just the crux of the problem for Paul with the chief priests. It is the heart of what we believe as Christians. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man for myself. So King Agrippa hears of this issue. It's not his problem. It's going past him straight up to Caesar. But he hears about the problem, and it's pretty, it's pretty interesting, right? From the outside, what do you see? Like, well, there's this guy. He goes around preaching, teaching. He's starting these little communities of faith, and it's really upsetting his own people. The Jewish leadership are, don't like this so much, so they want him dead. And they're saying he's worthy of death. 
but he's a Roman citizen too, and they can't find any real evidence to, 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 to bring charges against him that would lead to death. I want to hear this story. I want to meet this guy. That's what's happening here. So Agrippa, and we can just summarize this next part here. Agrippa says, I want to hear this guy, and so tomorrow's going to be the day. So the next day, King Agrippa comes in. There's a whole thing, because he's the king. He rolls in, and there's fanfare. There's all these things going on. And then uh, Agrippa, in verse tw chapter 26, verse 1, Agrippa then says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul stretches out his hands, and he begins to make his appeal. So that's what we see, right? Paul's defense before Agrippa in chapter 26. And in the first three verses, there's something I think it's really important. In the first three verses of Paul's defense, he shows the king respect. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. This is a respectful apostle. He's showing respect to a, a king who is not a believer, but who is familiar with the faith, who's in the midst of an immoral relationship that is publicly known. He's talking to somebody who, who has authority over him, even though he's not judging this particular case. And Paul shows respect. I just like this because it's a good reminder that we show respect to people as Christians. It is a part of our Christian duty to respect all people. We're going to talk more about that later. But make no mistake, we're supposed to respect people, to honor everyone, as the scripture says. We're supposed to not be arrogant and condescending and belligerent. You know, sometimes, listen, sometimes we, because we think we're right, and let's just say we are, in this particular situation. It's almost as if, listen, because I'm right and you're wrong, I don't have to be kind to you. I don't have to respect you. In fact, what I can do is I can judge you and I can yell at you and I can insult you because you are wrong. And Paul doesn't do that. Listen, Paul is right. He is innocent, but he doesn't, he doesn't offer insults here. Instead, he shows respect. Romans 13, 1 through 6, just, you know, Submit to the governing authorities, that whole passage. We're going to talk more about that later. So Paul shows respect, and then he shares his background in verses uh, 4 through 5 of chapter 26. And he says, My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. And they've known for a long time. Paul was pretty well known among the Jews. The rising star of the Pharisees, educated by Gamaliel. Everybody knew this guy. He was well known. They have known me for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews. O king, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Because that's what it's about. This is all about God raising someone from the dead. See, Paul was a Pharisee, the stricter, the more conservative aspect of Jewish leadership. 
and scholarship, right? You had the, the, the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees, and the Pharisees were very devoted to studying and seeking to understand all of the scripture, and the Sadducees less so. And, and the Pharisees took a more literal approach to it, and they saw the hope and the promise of the resurrection, and they believed in it, and the Sadducees did not believe in the hope of the resurrection. And so when Paul is, is in the, the party of the Pharisees, not only is he saying, like, listen, the, the, the resurrection is a true doctrine that we need to understand, he's going beyond that to say, and in fact, God has, has raised someone from the dead. The Lord Jesus Christ raised him to glory, and he is Lord. He is king of kings. So he's preaching this risen Lord who has ascended into heaven, who is enthroned in heaven, and who is coming again. That's the problem. Paul's saying, yeah, you know my background, and the problem here, the main problem here is I'm preaching the resurrection, and very specifically, I'm preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He lives. So he's, he's painting the picture, right? In his defense, he's showing respect, and then um, he is sharing his background, and then he points to the resurrection saying that's the real problem, and then he tells of his conversion. He gets personal here, and he talks about how he came to this place, because he wasn't always here, was he? In verses 9 through 23, Paul shares his conversion story. And in 9 through 11, what we see is that Paul admits that he used to be a persecutor. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so. In Jerusalem, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death... I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I imagine it's, it's painful for Paul in that moment, right? There's a, there's a pain there when you admit, like, yeah, listen, I understand why they're persecuting me. I know where that comes from, because I used to do it. I hated the church. I hated this Jesus. And not only did I seek criminal charges against these innocent brothers and sisters, I voted for them to be put to death. I stood there and watched and nodded in agreement. So Paul said, listen, that, that's, where I, that's where I was at. I was in charge of the gang for a while. And then, Paul says, and then I met Jesus. I met Jesus. Look at verses 12 through 16. In fact, but, and before I read this, let me just say this. Paul meets Jesus, not in Jesus' earthly ministry. Paul meets Jesus after he has died, risen, and ascended. He meets the risen, glorified Lord. And that's an even more real encounter with Jesus than anyone else had before him. It's not less real because Jesus is risen. It's more real. It, he, he is absolutely, truly there. I was just listening to Bill Maher. I couldn't remember his name. I was listening to Bill Maher. Not that I'm a Bill Maher guy, but, uh, but I, um, I'm making excuses. I was listening, I was listening to Bill Maher. Uh, Bill Maher was talking to uh, a comedian. And Bill Maher goes on this tear that he goes on sometimes about how, how the Bible, you know, uh, the, the, he's like, the New Testament is basically, it was written by, it was, four guys wrote the Gospels, and then Paul wrote the rest, which, that's not true. Okay, first of all. Uh, secondly, and he's like, and Paul... Paul, can't, Paul, you know, Paul doesn't say much about Jesus, and when he does, he just kind of makes it up, right? And, uh, and the reason he makes it all up is because he never met Jesus. 
Now, I don't expect him to know the Bible, but if you don't know the Bible, maybe don't talk so much about it. He didn't meet Jesus. We've already covered this account before. This is the second time it's repeated in the book of Acts, chapter 26, verses 12 through 16. Here's when Paul met Jesus. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, the very people that are now hunting him down. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul shares his testimony and preaches the gospel at the very same time. Paul meets Jesus, the real Jesus. He meets him, and he is forever changed in that moment. He goes from being a, a, a persecutor of the church to a citizen of God's kingdom, a lover of God's people, an apostle of that church. And he's, he, 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 he encounters Jesus, and he is not only confronted, he is changed. His heart, his mind, everything internally is changed, and then he is appointed. He is set apart for a particular task, to be a preacher of the gospel that will not only go to the Jews, right, to the Jewish people, from which it really stems, but also to the Gentile world. God is bringing together Jew and Gentile, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, slave, free man, black, white, Hispanic, Asian. It, it, all people are going to be brought together in one family. We will be one because of Jesus. But really, a part of this oneness is accomplished because God chose to use Paul to reach so many Gentiles. And in verses 19 and 20, Paul says, so yeah, listen, um, I was appointed to preach the gospel to outsiders, essentially, right? And, uh, and, and I obeyed. That's what happened. In verses 19 to 20, he says, I, I listened. I did what I was called to do. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That's what he did. He, goes, he said, I was faithful to do it, right? And it's not, he's not bragging on his faithfulness or his obedience. He's simply saying, this is what happened. I had to do those things because I want these people to believe. I want these people to see what I have seen, to know the one that I know. So that's what I did. And now, and it, comes all, it sort of comes full circle. He says, I started as a persecutor of the church, and now I am the persecuted. He gets it. He understands why they're doing it, but that, this is where he's at, verses 29, or 21 through, uh, through 23. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. 
To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. This is Paul's testimony, which makes up a large part of his defense I don't know that it's going to help his defense very much to talk about his faith and the gospel, but he can't escape it. He has to go there. In fact, he's so connected to Jesus and to this commission, he is so unapologetic in his faith that he, he calls on Agrippa, the king, to believe. Look at verses uh, 24 and the next few in chapter uh, 26. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. So Paul sounds like a crazy person to Festus. Now, why is that? it's, It's not because what Paul is saying is incoherent. He's not babbling. And he's not called a crazy person by Festus uh, because he is illogical. Perhaps it's in part because instead of making a fuller defense of himself, he's preaching Jesus, the very one who got him in trouble. But I think it's even more so. You're talking like a crazy person because in the midst of talking so much about Jesus, he is preaching I mean, he is earnest. He has conviction. He believes this stuff. And in the midst of making a defense for himself, he begins to preach this gospel more and more and more clearly and more boldly so that everyone there can hear. He's like, Paul, you're, you're, what are you, nuts? Like, where are you, what are you doing? What, calm down, preacher boy. I mean, that's sort of what's, what's happening here. They think that Paul has lost his marbles in a sense. He's animated. He's excited. And, and, and we also know that he's, he's not crazy because he's saying, like, you're, you're articulate, you're educated, you have so much knowledge. So obviously, he's not incoherent. Well, well educated. But listen, Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, my excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, And to him, I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in error. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Let's just take a minute. So Paul's making his defense, and then he gets into the gospel and his conversion story. He's talking about Jesus, and now they say, you're you're talking crazy. You're you're super smart, but you're you're, you're sort of freaking everybody out. And Paul says, "Uh, I'm not out of my mind. And, uh, and, and what does Paul do to demonstrate that? Uh, he is speaking truth, right? My words are true. So I'm not lying here. Uh, he says, I'm, I'm rational. Like, uh, th- these words are, are true and they're rational. And then he makes an appeal to the prophets, and they're biblical. His words are true, rational, and biblical. Can we please, can we please as Christians be devoted to speaking words that are true and rational and biblical? Can we do that? I think you guys do a good job of that at Redeemer. Again, you guys aren't on tilt all the time. Sometimes we get a little on tilt. Everybody, everybody has their moments. But that's the appeal. The, the, the appeal should be words that are true 
And words are rational and words that are ultimately biblical. That's what he does. He goes, I'm not, what are you going on about? And then he, he, he makes this direct appeal. He makes a, a direct appeal to the king, which I'm just surprised. I mean, it seems like a dangerous move. He says, hey, I'm talking to you. The king knows about these things. He knows about all of these issues because he's a king. He has to know what's happening among the Jews and the things that we believe. And he says, King Agrippa, in verse 27, do you believe the prophets? And then he says, I know you believe. Now, I haven't read a scholar yet that says, well, Agrippa was a believer. The issue is that Paul is pressing him to say, you're familiar with these writings. You're familiar with these debates. You're familiar with the scriptures. You know what they say. You know what they say about the coming Messiah. It's a way of of addressing Agrippa in a way that says, listen, you're familiar with these sacred writings, right? So it's an appeal. Heed those words. Believe those words. And I absolutely love, this might be my favorite part of the book of Acts, um, verses 28 and, uh, and 29. Agrippa said to Paul, in short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for my chains. (laughs) Ooh, that's so cool. That's so great. I absolutely love it. The king is like, hey, man, because Paul's intense. He's preaching. And he's like, what, you think I'm going to just become a Christian? You're going to convert me today? You get it, it's going to happen like that? And Paul said, well, yeah, that's the aim. That's what I want. And not just you, king. I want everybody that's hearing this to believe it's that important. It's that real. It matters to me. I'm willing to die for this. It's not just that Paul is bold. It's not just that Paul is right. It's that he has this way of respectfully but earnestly engaging lost people unapologetically with the only gospel that saves. And Agrippa, Agrippa in verses 30 to 32 says, yeah, uh, this guy's innocent. <laughs> uh, just look. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. In other words, he's like, well, that ball is in motion. <laughs> the, the machine is at work, so uh, we're going to have to let it play out. He's going to have to go to Caesar. But yeah, if it was just me, I mean, I'd let him... I let him go. So Paul's still under arrest. So that's where we're at. Okay, so that was the passage, okay? We had to go through the whole passage, right? It's a lot to cover. Um, just to get back to this point. And, and this is, again, what I want us to hold on to, what I want to be true of us. I want us to be unapologetically Christian, right? Which means that we have bold belief and kind conviction that is born of loving God and loving people. And the way that I've I've been thinking about this is, and all this is reflected in what we read in these two 
two, these two chapters, is that unapologetic Christianity is, is characterized by at least four principles, right? Unapologetic Christianity is first, respectful. Second, it is clear. Third, it is compelling. And fourth, it is hopeful. We'll go over all four. Unapologetic Christianity is first respectful, then clear, then compelling, then hopeful. First, it is respectful. It is not rude. It is not arrogant. It is not belligerent. It's not looking to pick fights. We have battles to fight. We we don't need to run out and start picking them. We are respectful to the people that we dialogue with. We are called to be respectful to the people with whom we want to share the gospel. In um, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, Peter says, honor everyone. It means respect everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. We show respect. Like I know every, every year or every term or whenever the presidency flip-flops, the other side goes, that's not my president. Like every, everybody does that. I mean, some of us joke about it. Some people really mean it, or at least they say that they mean it. That's not my president, so I'm going to go live in Canada or whatever because it's so great up there. Uh, but it's like, 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 like look, all right, like it, like it or not, that's your president. It, it can be a dud. It can be one you don't like. It can be a person that makes all kinds of bad decisions. You know, the emperors were pretty awful. And Paul says, honor the emperor. It doesn't mean be a bootlicker. You know, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't mean that you have to agree with and not even challenge them. It just means that you show respect to people. Now, just in our everyday lives, right? Again, there's this tendency for, for us. When we, some of us, when we're right, we get a little cocky. We get a little arrogant. We start to think of others who disagree with us as a little dumb, and we start talking down to them. It happens easily. We don't do that. Unapologetic Christianity is respectful. It means we're polite. We're polite. It means we listen. Listen when people are talking to you, even when they're wrong, especially when they're wrong, because if you listen to them when they're wrong, they're likely to listen to you when you are right. If you listen to them when they're wrong, you're you're more equipped to understand where they're coming from, why they hold the values that they hold, how the beliefs that they preach are tied to something deeper and more significant than they even recognize. We are polite. We listen when they talk because we are respectful. We are not insulting. We respect people because, number one, everybody is human. Everybody is made in God's image. And so we should be polite and respect them. And if that isn't enough for you, we also then look at their station. We respect people uh, and, and their position. Right? We respect the position, the office that they hold. And if that's not clear enough for you, the scripture says again and again that, cons- that we are to consider one another as worthy of more honor than we ourselves are worthy of. So unapologetic Christianity is first respectful as we engage, but secondly, it has to be clear. Unapologetic Christianity is not vague. It's not mushy. Right? It's not lost in, in, the, in the fog of ideas. This is why Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for all who believe. Right? For the Jew first and then for the Gentile. Paul's like, I'm not ashamed of it. It's the very power of God. It's the thing that saves. So we are clear about it. We preach it with clarity, with precision. 
We want it to be, we want to be right in the things that we are articulating. So to, to be clear in our unapologetic Christianity means that we have to know the gospel. We have to know it. We have to know the truth. We have to have a, a comprehension of this message that actually saves. Because if you don't know it, you can't present it. If you don't know it, you can't be very clear about it. And listen, I know, I know what it's like to feel the pressure of all these competing ideas and bad presentations of the gospel. And we're, we're trying to like say, well, sorry, that wasn't us. Don't, don't listen to that guy. That guy's crazy. And then, uh, but we do want to say something. And then people are yelling and you, you kind of get back into a corner. It's, it, it's not uncommon for us to sort of shrink back and just sort of mumble gospel cliches. You're not called to mumble gospel, gospel cliches. Gospel cliches don't save. The gospel saves. We have to know what it is. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners in which he fulfilled righteousness and suffered for sinners and rose from the dead in victory over death and hell and he's ascended into heaven. And all of this is to save, to rescue, to redeem fallen humanity. And he offers it to anyone who is willing to believe. We have to have clarity because only when we have clarity can we be concise. Only when we have clarity can we be bold. Unapologetic Christianity is respectful, it is clear, and it is also compelling. It's compelling. And here's what I mean. We're not, we're not describing to somebody an interesting billboard sign that we saw on the way to work when we're sharing the gospel. And I think it's true of all of us. I think sometimes we are more passionate about a new TV show or movie that we saw in describing it to a friend than we are in describing the good news to a lost person. I've been there. I've done that. We should be compelling, right? Listen to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.20. So therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a compelling offer, presentation, or appeal. This gospel cliche, mumbling, half-hearted, like, well, try it, like it. It's easy to fall into it. I get it. But listen, you've got to ask yourself, do I really believe what I'm saying? I don't even believe perfectly. None of us do. I don't even believe without any doubt. That person doesn't exist. But do you really believe it? And if you do really believe this gospel, can anyone tell? Can anyone go like, they, they actually really believe these things. And how would they tell? How could they tell? Well, they could tell by watching you and, and, and listening to you. In fact, if they really begin to think that you really believe these things, they might even think you're a little crazy. Right? I mean, how do you think about people that, in Scientology, Xenu, what do you, to be honest, you're like, that's a little nutty. Well, that's silly. You think that the world doesn't think that way about us? That is, that is exactly what they think about us. They're like, yeah, and they're like, but you believe in a guy? And even though you can prove that Jesus existed, I believe you can 
absolutely prove it. Some people still have a hard time with that. Jesus existed, and he definitely died. We can verify this. He died. He was crucified, and that tomb was empty. And, uh, and they're like, so yeah, you believe this guy rose from the dead and that he's God in the flesh. And uh, okay, yeah, and there's a hell and there's a heaven. And they just go, okay, Zenu, whatever. They might think you're a little crazy. And that's okay. Because we're not crazy. We're speaking truth. We're being rational. We're being biblical. And to be compelling means this. At bottom, at the end, it means you call for a response. Preaching the gospel calls for a response. So yes, it's totally appropriate. It's good to share what you have experienced, what you have come to believe. That's my soft entry into evangelism with people. I'm like, oh, this is where I was, this is where I wound up. This is, where I, this is what I discovered, you know, reading the Bible, and God just it opened my mind, and I believe the gospel, and I do the whole thing. But it's not really technically evangelism until you make that appeal. What about you? Would you... Receive the Son? Would you believe in Jesus? Are you willing to lay down your idol and yourself and look to Christ as Lord? That's compelling, right? Unapologetic Christianity is respectful, clear, compelling, and hopeful. It's hopeful. It means that we're not in a constant state of pessimism and defeat, thinking like, oh, well, I guess the world's going to hell, and there's nothing we can really do about it, and the world hates us, and America's getting worse, and it's getting more hostile to Christianity, so I guess that's just the way that it is. And yeah, it is sort of that. That is sort of, <laughs> there's a lot of truth in that. But there is no obstacle, there is no opposition that is stronger than God. There is nothing that can stop the movement of God, the spirit of God, the gospel of God. It will advance. It will continue. Disciples will be made. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. So we should be hopeful in our preaching of the gospel and our sharing of the gospel and the sharing of our lives with people. We should be hopeful that they will believe. How many times have you shared the gospel and prayed for people while actually saying to your Christian friends, I don't think they're ever going to believe. I don't think anything's going to change here. We should be hopeful, right? What does it say in Acts 1.8? Jesus says before his ascension, you will receive the Holy Spirit, right? You will receive power, right? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth, right? So here's the thing. You're there. You're in the uttermost parts of the earth. It's happening. And so we now should have all this boldness and hope because God does what he says he'll do. He's going to use us as ambassadors. We need, we need to check our doubts. They're going to come up. Check them. Know them. And check your limited scope. Right? It's easy. Like, you know, we have a limited scope. And sometimes a limited scope means you, you only make limited attempts. A limited attempt is better than no attempt. But we should be going for it. We should be telling as many people as we can. We, be sh we should be sharing as much as we can, as often as we can, as much as your own soul can bear it, because everybody is wired differently. We should be seeking to earnestly share the gospel with anyone who is willing to listen, respectfully, clearly, in a compelling way, with great hope. See, we're hopeful because we love God and we love people, and so we're not blindly optimistic that everything is going to change, but we are hopeful that God would do what he said he would do, that the church would be built, 
that people would be converted, that disciples would be made, and who knows? Because God sometimes surprises us and do things that are not guaranteed, like bring revival. Yeah, America is different. In some ways, very good. So glad America is different than it used to be. Some of that's really important, right? Because we had some messed up, we have some messed up history. Some ways that are really bad and not good at all. But you do know that God does what we call great awakenings. Where not where like large numbers of people are converted in short periods of time, so much so that cities feel that change. That like people, it is the talk in every store, in every coffee shop, in every bar. Everybody talk, is talking about Jesus and the church and all these people being converted, even when they aren't believing because they can't escape it. It is all over the place. It's in the news. Great awakenings and revivals were then, in, in those contexts, Christians then, their hearts are stirred again and they're, they're, they're inflamed with passion and earnestness for the Lord. God is not limited by the opposition. In fact, sometimes when the opposition and the persecution is at its most intense is when God does some of his most dramatic work. So we should be unapologetic in our Christianity, respectful, clear, compelling, and hopeful as we share the gospel with the lost. And let me just say this. If you are not a Christian, you're here and we're talking about we need to be Christians who are unapologetic. Please hear me. I'm not saying that we should be arrogant and proud and combative. I'm saying that we should be humble and bold. I'm saying that we are no better than anybody else, but by God's grace, we have come to see who Jesus is. So if we go back to 2 Corinthians 5.20, my appeal to you is the appeal that was made to me. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is a promise of redemption offered to all sinners who are willing to believe it. I pray you believe it today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to read and retain and heed your word. We want to be a people who, who believe this, who are changed by it. We pray that you would give us boldness and clarity and humility. Lord, we thank you for showing us mercy, just like you showed Paul. We pray that you would show it to more and that you would allow us to be a part of it. In Christ's name, amen.